All right, so uh, we are going to be in uh, Acts 18. As I said, Paul uh, is in this city called Corinth. And to get going, I just wanted to provide some uh, context on the city of Corinth and where Paul is headed. Thank you very much. Um, so we have a map. Paul, this is his second, this is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's a couple decades after that. Paul, one of the early leaders in the Jesus movement, he's going around, he's on these journeys in the Roman Empire, sharing the Jesus story, um, inviting people to become followers of Jesus. And he, uh, he's, the second journey that he went on, we, we've been following it, he went up, you can see it started over in Jerusalem, went up through Syria, and then way up at the top of the screen, Philippi, we talked about that, and then he came down to Athens. Two weeks ago, Kelly talked about his time in Athens. And then um, today, you can see the red circle around Corinth. He's in southern Greece now, and uh, he is, uh, he's in the city, Corinth, and, he, and he's teaching people uh, about uh, Jesus there. And Corinth um, was one of the larger cities in the Roman Empire, one of the top ten largest cities. I think we have a picture of it. Uh, probably about 100,000 people, one of the top ten cities. Uh, and, and Corinth had been destroyed, and then it had to be rebuilt by Julius Caesar about a century before Paul showed up. So it's a recently rebuilt city. So it's kind of an up-and-coming city. A lot of ex, ex-soldiers, ex-slaves were going there. A place you could make your name, a place you could earn a fortune. It was kind of a boom town. And, uh, and, and so money, people are making a name there. Money is flowing in and out of Corinth. Corinth uh, had, was very particularly situated so that uh, it was a major kind of trading post. We have a map that shows this. Notice how Corinth, notice how there's these two gulfs that meet right north of Corinth. There's the, the Saronic Gulf and the Gulf of Corinth. The Saronic Gulf gives access to the Aegean Sea. The Gulf of Corinth gives access to the Ionian Sea. And so, um, and th- that little, there's a little isthmus there right north of Corinth that's just four or five miles across. Now, sailors in the, in the ancient Mediterranean world, they didn't like sailing around the southern end of Greece. Do you see that Cape Malia there at the very bottom? Cape Malia was a treacherous place to sail around. There was an ancient saying. Sailors would say, if you're going to sail around Cape Malia, make sure you say goodbye to home first. So it's like, whoa, yeah. So they didn't like going around there. Instead, what they would do is they'd sail up the Saronic Gulf, and that, that four or five mile little isthmus, it says Diolokos, they built a road there. We have a picture of it. They built this four or five mile road um, where they would put the boats up on like wooden wheels, and they would drag the thing four or five miles to the other coast. And sailors preferred doing that than sailing around the treacherous southern coast of Greece. And so Corinth controlled this. All, I mean, think about all the boat, the, the sea trade in the Mediterranean world coming to and from Rome. So much of it is flowing over this road past Corinth. Think about the money. So you got all the, most of the sailors, most of the ships in the Mediterranean world are going through Corinth. And so you had, you had uh, it meant a couple things. One, it meant money. I mean, most of the, the sea trade is going through Corinth. So there's money flowing in and out of the city. I mean, imagine the, they, they could charge fees. They could charge taxes. The sailors would stop for a night. They'd spend a couple nights there in Corinth, all the money flowing into the city. It was a place you could make a fortune. So it meant money. It also meant that Corinth was a pretty wild city. I mean, imagine if the majority of sailors in the, in the, the known world were Stopping by your town for a couple nights once a year, a couple times a year. I mean, it was a pretty wild city. So, so uh, Corinth developed this pretty wild, immoral reputation. There's a, uh, there's a philosopher that coined a term to Corinthianize. And to Corinthianize meant to sleep with whoever you wanted. 
Corinthianized. It became a term. Plato, Plato uh, had this kind of derogatory term. Plato would call someone a Corinthian girl, and it meant basically a prostitute. The historian Strabo, talking about some of the temples there. There's a temple. Here's a, let's go to the next slide. On top of the, the, the uh, Acropolis there in the background that you can see, there's a temple up there to Aphrodite. Um, and uh, Strabo says that there was a thousand prostitute priestesses that worked uh, at the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth. I mean, this was a wildly immoral city. And then, so you had money there, you had this kind of sexual immorality, and it was also this kind of religious, like, uh, all, you know, like a la carte buffet, like many of the places in the Roman Empire. It was just kind of, there's temples to whoever and whatever you wanted. So they, in the digging at Corinth, this is what they found so far. They found temples to Fortune, Neptune, Apollo, Aphrodite, Venus, Octavia, Asclepius, Demeter, Core, and Poseidon. And that's the ones they've dug up so far. So Corinth, here's Corinth. Corinth, it's this, uh, this city, uh, this boom town, place to make, is money-focused, uh, sexually immoral, hyper-sexualized culture, and, uh, and spiritual a la carte, kind of whatever you want spiritually. Pick and choose for yourself a uh, religious buffet. This is Corinth. Paul comes to Corinth two decades after the, the resurrection of Jesus, and his task is to... Uh, his task is to uh, begin the Jesus movement in Corinth. He wants, to, he wants to form maturing followers of Jesus in Corinth. Now, now, if that was you, if you were showing up at this town, Corinth, probably almost no one knows about Jesus. This, you know, money-focused, hypersexualized, you know, religious, all a carpet buffet. And it, you had the you had the task of beginning the Jesus movement there. You had the task of forming, maturing followers of Jesus there. How would you go about doing that? How would you start doing that? What would you, what would, what, where would you begin? And I think it's a, I think it's a relevant question for us to think about. Because there are parallels, there are parallels, it's not that we don't live in the exact same situation, but that we do have parallels with our life today. We, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're called yourself to be continually be formed as a maturing follower of Jesus. We as a community are called to be inviting more people to be maturing followers of Jesus, to be shaping one another, shaping those in our small groups, in our cores, in our families into the image to become maturing followers of Jesus. We are called to do that. How do we go about that, though? I know for myself, I think about, as a father, I am tasked with helping form my kids, my three little girls, and I think about them, them growing up as, as women in this culture where they will be told, um, where they will be told that their identity is, is as sexual objects, and that their value comes from their outward physical appearance. And in this world, I am called to help form them into maturing followers of Jesus. How do we go about that? We all are called to this. For our families, for our friends, our housemates, our small groups, for ourselves. And even if you're here today, 
Even if you're here and you're like, I'm not, Tim, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a Jesus. I mean, I'm just, I'm checking this out. Even if that's you, I still would have to believe you don't desire to simply be a clone of our culture. And the question still remains, where will you get the vision and the power to live differently? So I'd like to look now, I'd like to kind of drop into the story. I want to follow Paul and see what Paul did here in Corinth. See, see what he did there and see, kind of look around in the story and see how that might speak into our lives today. So let's turn now to Acts 18, verse 1. And see what's going on here. So Paul in Corinth, Acts 18 reads this way, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius, who was the emperor at the time, Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. All right, I'll just pause there. I want to go on a little rabbit trail um, on, on this. Well, have you ever... Have you ever heard it said, or have you ever read where somebody might make the claim that the Bible is made all made up stories? It's just legends that kind of came together over time. There's not there's not kind of historical truth behind it. I just want to pause and look at the Luke. The, Luke, the author of this book, the author of Acts, here is very he's very accurate about his history. It says that Claudius, the Roman emperor, um, it, it says that he expelled the Jews from Rome. And we there's a, a Roman historian Suetonius who actually records this. Suetonius records that in the year 49. Claudius expelled all the Jews out of Rome. And here we have Luke um, reflecting the exact same scene. The, the extra biblical material uh, uh, verifies what Luke is writing. And in fact, there's a couple things like this tied to the Corinth story. Um, we're not going to get to this character, but towards the end, in uh, verse 12, we're not going to get there, but there's a character named Gallio that shows up. Gallio was the, it's called the pro-council. It's a, a, a governmental leadership role over southern Greece. He was the pro-council. And Luke's a, Luke mentions it, Gallio was the pro-council of Greece. Well, um, Claudius, the emperor of, of Rome, wrote a letter to Gallio, we actually have the stone inscription of it. It's in a town near Corinth called Delphi. And basically it says, you know, it says, I, Claudius, the best looking, most powerful person in the world, da, 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 write to you, Gallio, my faithful servant, who's so, you know. And it, but the, the point being um, that it, it talks about Gallio as proconsul of this region around the year 52, which would make sense because that's right about the time that Paul was here, just a couple years after Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. So the point is that Luke is he's verified by all this other outside of the Bible evidence. It all lines up together. Which raises the question for the, for the skeptic, it raises the question, if Luke is right about this, if he's accurate about this, what else might Luke be telling the truth about? Okay, end of rabbit trail. Uh, back, uh, picking up uh, at the end of verse 2 here. So, let's see. Paul, so Aquila and Priscilla, they, Jews, they've been kicked out of Rome, now they're in Corinth, and it says, end of verse 2, Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, 
Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. All right, uh, pause there uh, just for a second. A couple, couple interesting things. What, how does one shake out one's clothes in protest? Have you ever done that before? You know, like you couldn't get a refund at the store, so I shake out clothes. And you know, how does that, how does that work? He's like, I'm gonna shake, shake, shake it off, shake it off. He's like, you get, you know, off me. You know, how does that? I don't know. I don't know exactly how that works. Um, so he, so but the Paul, he, 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 he's going to these Jews in the synagogue, and he's very, he wants them to understand that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He's their King, and he's their Savior. And he wants them to understand that, but they're not. They're not, um, they're not accepting it, and he's frustrated. And when you read Paul, the stories of Paul, the letters of Paul, you find he's an intense guy, right? So his reaction is, I'm done with you. I'm done. I'm never talking to you again. I'm only going to non-Jews. I'm finished with this. And then did you catch what happens next? Do you catch kind of God's sense of humor in all this? He's like, I, you, none of you Jews listen to this. I'm done with this. And then, then, you know, like two sentences later, and the leader of the synagogue became a follower of Jesus. I just say, isn't that God's sense of humor that he's like, I'm done. And then Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and his entire family became followers of Jesus. And just, I don't know, I just find that, I find that funny. You know, Paul, don't give up on him. He's, he's wound up. Um, so, so this happens. The leader of the synagogue becomes a follower of Jesus. This encouragement for Paul. But then the encouragement continues. Let's pick up, uh, pick up in verse 9. Uh, this is what happens. One night... The Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you. Because I have many people in this city. And then this final sentence that we're going to read together. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. So Paul stayed in Corinth a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. We, uh, we started with this question of, in a, in, a, in a situation like Corinth, how do you go about starting the Jesus movement there, forming, maturing followers of Jesus? And I think here in this verse 11, this last sentence, I think we get a hint at how Paul went about it. What did he do? For a year and a half, for 18 months, all he did was teach the word of God. He taught the word of God. This is, he, certainly he did more than that, but he didn't do it central to Paul's strategy. Was this, this he taught the word of God. Now, I want to I dig into this. I want to camp here and kind of explore what does that mean exactly? Why would he do that? What does it mean that he did that? Because I think we can hear, okay, so, Paul, so he taught, the, what, does that, what does that mean? And, and the first question I want to ask is, when, when Luke, the author, tells us that Paul taught the word of God, what exactly was Paul teaching? 
I mean, it says Word of God, but the thing about Word of God, it's one of those kind of, it's, it's a nice religious sounding phrase, Word of God, yes, oh, that sounds wonderful. What does that mean? Well, I don't know, but it sounds wonderful, it's very strong. And what, what, is, what does it mean when it says Word of God? And if you were going to answer that question, what does the author mean when they're writing that Paul taught the Word of God, where would you, where would you start looking? Well, you would look elsewhere in the book of Acts. How in the rest of the book of Acts is this phrase, Word of God, used? So the phrase, Word of God, actually occurs 11 times in the book of Acts. And when you, when you survey those, and we're not going to go through them one at a time right now, but when you survey them, they, uh, they, it seems to have a pretty specific meaning that the Word of God, when used in Acts, means the story of Jesus. It doesn't mean all scripture altogether. It means specifically the story of Jesus. So, for example, in Acts 4, uh, uh, Luke writes that the the disciples in Jerusalem spoke the word of God with boldness. They shared the word of God with boldness. Well, they weren't weren't going around like boldly proclaiming the Proverbs. What what they were doing, they're boldly proclaiming the story of Jesus. Or uh, Paul goes to the synagogue in in Acts chapter 13, and he goes to the Jews, and it says, and he shared with them the word of God. Well, what was it that those Jews in the synagogue didn't know yet? Well, the thing that they didn't know, they didn't know the story of Jesus as the culmination of the Hebrew scriptures. And so throughout Acts, we see the word of God specifically means the story, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the words and actions of Jesus. And so Paul spends 18 months Teaching about Jesus, the words, the deeds, his life, death, and resurrection. Yes, I'm sure how that culminated all that was happening in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, but focused on Jesus. But I think for me that leads to another question. Another question. If Luke meant for us to understand that Paul spent 18 months, Paul spent a year and a half teaching about the story of Jesus... Why didn't he just say that? That would have been more straightforward, right? Why, why, didn't Paul, why didn't Luke just write, and Paul spent a year and a half teaching about Jesus? Why did he say Paul spent a year and a half teaching the word of God? Why does Luke call the story of Jesus the word of God? And if we're going to answer that question, I think we have to push further back. In the Hebrew scriptures, the phrase word of God was, is in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's already a phrase that's full of meaning. The idea Word of God occurs about 400 times in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament. So it was, it was an idea that, that uh, anyone familiar with the biblical story, they would have been familiar with the Word. Oh yes, the Word of God. And if you go through and you look at those 400 uses of this idea, the Word of God, what you find is in the Hebrew Scriptures, when it talks about the Word of God, the Word of God is, it's something like, it's, it's this, it's when It's the idea that the living God of the universe is actively speaking to men and women, to nations, to all creation. And when the living God speaks, there's power in it. Something always happens. That when when this this living God, the word of God, it's a dynamic idea. It's an active idea. It's a present tense idea that God is speaking into the lives of men and women, into, into, into creation. And when God speaks, things happen. 
Salvation and healing occur. Rescues occur. Judgment falls down. New creation happens. New realities are formed. New identities come to be. That when, when the living God speaks things, it's dynamic, it's active, it's present. And I believe... Luke, by calling, he says, when he says that Paul taught the word of God, but Luke is saying the story of Jesus is the active, the active speaking of God. That when, that, when, um, that when the story of Jesus is told, when we, when we hear about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, when we hear about how Jesus culminated all that has been, God has been doing in history, when we study the story of Jesus, when we talk about the story of Jesus together, that is not simply studying an interesting fact about the past. But in that moment that we, we hear the story of Jesus, that moment in and of itself is a moment where God is actively speaking to men and women and creating new realities in their lives. When we open up the Gospels, when we read about Jesus, when we tell the story of Jesus, when we study, when we study Jesus together, that in that very moment, God is actively speaking here and now, speaking words of salvation, speaking words of judgment, speaking new identities, speaking hope, speaking new creation in that very moment. And I believe that Paul, what's going on here is that Paul, Paul comes to Corinth. Paul, he's, he's tasked with this, this beginning the Jesus movement in Corinth and, and forming maturing followers of Jesus. And Paul understands that Paul can't do this on his own. Paul can't make disciples of Jesus. But Paul knows that, that, that God can form maturing followers of Jesus. And Paul wants to put men and women in communication, in conversation with the living God of the universe. And so by teaching the story of Jesus, Paul knows that in that moment, God will be speaking to these men and women and saving and rescuing and changing and giving new identities and forming new realities in their life. I believe that that is why Paul spends 18 months teaching the word of God, let it, putting people in contact, letting people hear the voice of God in their life. So what does this mean for us? I believe it means a couple of things. One, uh, I believe it means that God is still speaking. The living God of the universe, the God who created this place, who sustains this place, is still speaking. God wants to speak to you. God wants to speak to us. And I believe he does that when we, when we, when we, we read the stories of Jesus, we study uh, the stories of Jesus, we talk about it, we wrestle with it. And the, the rest of the scripture too, insofar that it points toward Jesus and he fulfills it. But when we do that, God speaks to us. And God, it's not just kind of helpful information. It's an active word into our lives. It's the difference between, uh, well, well, imagine, imagine you're a, a castaway on a desert island, right? Uh, I hope maybe you've been a castaway on a desert island. If so, that's a very bad memory for you, but I'm sorry. So, but imagine, imagine you're a castaway on a desert island. And it's the difference between, um, imagine you're on this desert island and you find a book called the Flora and Fauna of Desert Islands. That would be a very helpful book. Uh, but that it would be kind of this old static information. It would just be some information about the place. That's not exactly what the Bible is. The Bible is more like this, that you're on a desert island, and one day you're walking along the, the, the seashore and you come across a bottle. 
maybe like this bottle, with a message poking out of it. And you pull the message out, and you read the message, and it says, get ready. Help is on the way. Scripture, it's a living, active, dynamic, present tense word into our lives. It's not just kind of this helpful, static information of the past. It's about a, it's a living God speaking a living word into our lives here and now. And so what does this mean for us? I think it means creating space in our lives. Creating space in our lives to listen for the voice of God through Scripture, through the stories of Jesus. I think it means setting time aside to, re- to read Scripture on a regular basis. I know for myself, you know, earlier I talked about um, being a dad of little girls. For our family, it means, you know, before bed, we open up the Jesus Story Book Bible and we, re- you know, we read, a, we read a story together just every day that that is part of our, our family rhythm. Usually it's about the, that, read the story of the giant, you know, David and Goliath. They love that one. The kid kills the giant. I don't know. But, uh, but you know, regularly we're reading this together. Uh, maybe it means joining joining one of the studies here at here at Hillcrest, like Precepts or Beth Moore, or joining a small group. Our small groups are often centered around opening up Scripture together. Because why? Because we believe God speaks an active and living Word into our lives through that, and He's doing these things. And uh, yeah, but my my concern, even as I say these things, my concern is this. That, uh, that you would hear me say, well, hey, we need to create space uh, to read Scripture and to study it and to talk about it together so that God can speak to us. My concern is that you would hear that and that you would walk away and just you, all you would think is, well, Tim just told me I have to read my Bible more. I should read my Bible more. Kind of like you should eat your vegetables more, take your vitamins, you should exercise. You know, kind of just, oh, it's good for me. I don't really. That's my concern is that that's what you hear. Uh, let me say this to you. I do not simply want you to add an I don't want to just add another thing to your to-do list. I don't want you to simply just read your Bible more because you know you should. I, my hope for you, my hope for you is that you would become convinced that the God of divine love desires to speak to you that you would anticipate that. You would, be, uh, you would anxiously expect it. That you'd be thirsty for it. That, that would, your heart would hunger for it. And that out of that hunger and thirst, out of that place, you would go to Scripture on your own, in your family, in your core, in your small group, expectantly hoping to hear from the living God. That is my hope. I believe he is speaking. I believe he does it through his word. My hope is that you would hunger for that. You'd be looking for that. Not doing it because it's like eating your vegetables, but doing it because you're thirsty. You want to find that message in the bottle. Help is on the way. And so I'm convinced. I'm convinced there's a living God. I'm convinced he speaks. I'm convinced that he still speaks through his story of Jesus and the, the entire scriptures as they're centered on Jesus. And I'm convinced that when the living God speaks, something always happens. Let's pray.
Father, Son, Spirit, we do believe uh, you are a uh, living God, a community of divine love that you want to invite us into, uh, that we would know you and be known by you. We'd be formed uh, into the men and women you desire us to be, that in knowing you and being known by you, we become more uh, who we truly are. And we believe that part of that process is to listen to your voice, that these ancient words, thousands of years old, become present tense words as we open up our hearts. And so would you, Spirit, would you make us into a hungry community? Would you make us into an expectant community? Would you make us into a community of anticipation, ready to listen? Pray that for myself, for my family, for my small group, for this church family. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.